Well, uh, glad to be here with you guys this morning. You guys glad to be here? Okay, good, 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 good. Um, last week, I actually wrote my message on Tuesday and Wednesday this week. And the first thing I have in my notes is to talk about how bad the Buckeyes beat the Wolverines yesterday. Um, I guess I won't be doing that. And uh, yesterday was just a terrible day, okay? Just, just was bad. Um, Michigan has to win once every 10 years. And get it. You know, good for the five of you. Oh, my God. All right. Got Michigan people, apparel staring me down. I can't talk like this in these conditions. Um, but uh, you guys got to win once every 10 years. And I hate it. And I can barely stand it. And I'm sure in 10 years, when you guys win another one, I'm going to feel the exact same way. But, um, but yeah, last, yesterday was rough. So anyway, let's talk about something that's uh, fun to talk about and that's happy um, because that's not. And uh, Operation Christmas Child, our, our Operation Christmas Child boxes. By the way, if you're new, uh, there's, this is something that our church does is, is we fill up these shoebox size boxes with stuff like toys and balls and, um, and toothbrushes and just all this kind of stuff. And those are shipped to children all around the world who don't get to experience a Christmas like what we experience. And so um, our goal, well, actually... Two years ago when we started, we filled up 427 boxes. Last year, we did 532 boxes. This year, our goal was to, oh, there's another, <laughs> dang, Jason, killing me. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm distracted. Um, anyway, our goal this year was to fill 650 boxes, okay? So a lot more than we did last year. And I'll be honest with you, last, last week as I'm standing up here on the stage, um, we only had like 150 boxes sitting there. And I was a little worried. Actually, I was a little disappointed. I'm like, our people took all the boxes home and didn't bring them back. What's up with that? Like, using them for Christmas boxes or what? That's messed up. And, uh, but as the day wore on, we actually brought in a total. Here's the grand total. We brought in 800 boxes um, even, okay? It's that number. So that's cool. We actually only had 799 that went on the truck, which I was just like, oh, we were like one more, one box away. And then somebody, one of you guys, you brought in a box way late on Tuesday. The truck had already left on Monday morning. And uh, but so we were able to, we actually have a lady who's going to Chicago. She's going to help a volunteer with the organization that's doing that, sorting through boxes or something. I don't know. And she's actually taking that box for us. So um, whoever you are, your, boxes, your, your box counts. And, uh, and thanks for bringing that in because you got us into the 800s. So yeah, good for you. I don't know who brought that in, but, uh, but somebody did. So that's pretty cool. Um, those are, that's, by the way, 800 kids that will get a present um, from our Tiffin campus uh, this year who a lot of these kids, they don't even get to, they've never even gotten a present before in their entire life. Okay, and here they get a box of stuff that's just a cool thing. Not only um, do they just get some toys and stuff like that, but they also get to hear about the good news and what Jesus has done for them, that, he has, that there's hope and, um, and that, you know, that, that there's you know, good stuff in this world as well and that there's a group of people on the other side of the world that love them. We may not know them, but we care about them. And um, one cool thing is the statistic is um, it, one box really touches a lot more than just one kid, one child, um, it actually touches around 10 people because, it's, you know, it, it impacts their whole family and, and the village and just all this type of stuff. So um, that's like 8,000 people that were impacted just from our Tiffin Campus Church uh, just because we went out and put like $20 boxes together, okay? So just kind of a cool thing to think about. Um, 
that God, you know, that God uses. So pretty cool. Uh, today, um, we were going to wrap up our series, uh, but uh, we're not going to, we're going to push it off one more week uh, just because I couldn't fit everything in. Uh, throughout this last series, we've been going through two little letters called First and Second Thessalonians, which are actually um, two letters written by this guy named Paul. He's writing to this group of uh, new group of Christians in this huge city called Thessalonica, and he's telling them about the events that are actually going to happen in the future. Okay, and a lot of these things haven't happened yet. So um, let me just say that uh, we, this is stuff that we've been really diving into the last three weeks. And so each event really builds off the previous one. So if you missed a week, you should really go and you should watch online on YouTube or on our you know, ohiograce.com or listen to it, however you want to do that. But you should at least watch or listen to it. Otherwise, some of the stuff's just not going to make sense. Does that make sense? Okay, kind of. All right. Um, so I encourage you to go do that. Uh, today what I want to do is I want to recap what Paul has been talking about, uh, what we've been looking at really the last three weeks. And then we're going to jump out of Paul's letters and we're going to look at Jesus' actual return, which is what Paul keeps on pointing to and what Paul keeps on talking about. And then we're going to talk about what happens after. So I'm going to try to kind of bring us all back in. Try to connect the dots a little bit. We'll review some of this stuff, and then, um, and then we'll go on. So if you're new with us this morning, I'm just saying this is going to be weird. You're going to be like, maybe you're weirded out already, and you're like, what? Is he talking about the future? What's going on here? I get it. It is weird. I'll admit it 100% right off the bat, but it's true, okay? This is God telling us that Jesus is coming back, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not. It is as certain as tomorrow morning. It's going to happen. It's happening. And so um, it's just, you know, some of the stuff, stuff that is hard for us to imagine because it's stuff that we've never experienced here before. So uh, like I said last time, today is going to be kind of like class again, which I know a lot of us, you know, we hate class, right? We hated, well, some of you guys love going to school. I didn't particularly like it. But uh, there's going to be a lot of information thrown out your way. And so we're going to do it. So you guys ready? Okay, all right. Work with me here. All right, there, that, that's good. All right, try to follow along. We'll try to make this as least complicated as possible because it's complicated. All right, here's my trusty timeline right here. <laughs> it's already getting complicated. Some of you guys are like, what is that? Um, so here's what we got. Jesus' first coming. That happened 2,000 years ago uh, what, in, during a, a, a holiday that we call... Christmas, yeah, where Jesus is born, he's laying in the manger, he got Mary, he got all this stuff going on. He lives for about 33 years, and then he is put to death on a Roman cross. And when he does that, the main thing of that is Jesus came first to take care of our sin problem. Because every single one of us in this room, we are all in the same boat, is that we are not perfect, and we are sinners, and there's not enough good that we can do possible in our in our life to like somehow impress God. See, a lot of people, that's what, that's what we think. We think religion is doing enough good that somehow God looks at us and says, wow, Zach, you are a really good person. You get to come to heaven. That's great. All right? That is not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible says there is not enough good that you can do. God had to come and he had to sacrifice himself for you and for me. And that's what he did 2,000 years ago. He didn't have to. He chose to. Somehow he wanted to. Um, since then, 
we've been in this age that a lot of scholars call the church age, right? It's a period of time where we are waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting, waiting for his return. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know if it's going to be another thousand years or if it's going to be next year, okay? We don't know how long this period of time will last. But this period of time will end when, with this event that Paul calls, or that, that we call the rapture. Paul actually explains it as we are caught up or people who have given their lives over to Jesus are caught up or snatched up to be with Jesus. So basically what God is doing here is he is coming and he is rescuing his people and, uh, and from what's about to happen next. And so when this happens, right, the world is going to be a mess. I mean, let's just be honest. Let's, let's think about this logically. Uh, the world's just going to be chaos. Right now, uh, experts, they say there's about 3 billion Christians in the world today. Um, I personally don't believe that. I think the number's a lot lower because just because you say you're a Christian does not mean you're truly, really a Christian. Does that make sense? Okay. A Christian's only somebody who has had a, a moment in their life where they have given their lives over to Jesus. Okay. So not everybody in this room is a Christian. Okay. Just because you're here at church, good for you. All right. It doesn't mean that you're, that you're right with God on the inside. And so um, God's going to come and he's going to rescue those of us who have given our lives over to Jesus. And that, let, let's just say for number's sake, let's say that's a billion people. So one third of what experts say. Well, if a billion people in this world just vanished or left or whatever that looks like, right, the world's going to go crazy. Like I feel like now, uh, two years ago, I wouldn't have understood how this could be as much as I do now. Like even with a global pandemic, um, we got, you know, a whole bunch of stuff happening where the world just kind of shuts down. I'm sure this is going to be really the same way and it's going to happen kind of the same, you know, the same, the same things are in a sense going to happen. Um, the same effects it's going to have. And so soon after this event, the rapture, right, we see it up there, um, the day of the Lord begins. Now, the day of the Lord is, it really encompasses two things. Number one, it encompasses the tribulation period, which is seven years, which we've been talking about the last two weeks. And then it also encompasses Jesus' actual physical second coming. So the day of the Lord is not like a physical day necessarily. The day of the Lord is a period of time where Jesus comes back in the world and, and God's getting ready for Jesus to come back. And so that's what's going on with that. Now, the day of the Lord, what Mike talked about last week, is that it begins with a seven-year peace treaty that some world leader, who the Bible calls the Antichrist, makes with the country or with the nation of Israel. Now, for most of the past 2,000 years that, that you know, these writings have existed, that, you know, this has sounded crazy because Israel, the country, hasn't existed, right? Hasn't been a nation, hasn't been a, Israel doesn't exist. The Jewish people have been around, but their country as a whole hasn't existed until 1948, where Israel, which hadn't existed for thousands of years, all of a sudden, back on the map. Kind of creepy, right? <laughs> kind of like, oh, interesting. Um, so now all of this is possible. It's interesting because Israel, uh, who has, you know, even though they're a country and stuff, they have not experienced real peace since they were, since they became a nation. And this is something that I don't feel like we understand at, here in America because we understand peace. Like, like we're, we don't have fighting in the streets and stuff like that. That's not what Israel has, has existed. Here's a map um, of the Middle East right here. And I got my, 
laser pointer. I'll try not to get your eyes this time. There we go. Okay, so Israel is this little sliver right here, okay? So you got the Middle East, you got Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria, Turkey. Israel's this little sliver um, right on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And, um, and kind of the, let me give you just a quick history lesson. Sound like a plan? Just so we can all get on the same page and understand a little, okay, all right. Well, after World War I, Great Britain is in control of this space right here called Palestine. All right, it's right on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. It's where ancient Israel, it's where the, it's where the country always existed. This is where it was. And Great Britain wanted to give the Jews their nation and, uh, and, and re-put, you know, put Israel kind of back on the map. But they didn't because of pressure from the Arabs who were also living in the area, who, by the way, said, no freaking way. Okay, that's what they're saying. So... Um, they didn't do that. Some time passed. You got World War II. Um, at wor- during war- World War II, you have six million Jews who are brutally murdered, okay, in death camps and all that kind of stuff. And so there became a lot of international sympathy for the Jewish people. And in 1948, Great Britain and the United Nations came together and came up with a plan called the Partition Plan, which rejected the air- or which which basically gave Israel um, their space back on the map where all the Jewish people could live and have their country back. Uh, the partition plan was completely rejected by the Arabs who were in the area. And in fact, they claimed that they would, be, they would exterminate the Jews in just a few weeks. Okay, that's what they said. If you guys give them their country, we're going to come in and we're just going to kill them all. And so in 1948, that's exactly what they tried to do. As the partition plan went forward, Jewish people from all over the world who were still alive came to, you know, begin their nation again that hadn't existed for thousands of years. And in 1948, you have the War of Independence. This, is 19, this lasts for about a couple years. And Israel is invaded by, by Egypt, by Jordan, by Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. They all come and they all gang up on uh, this brand new, feeble, weak nation called Israel. So that's 45 million Arabs against 64,000 Jews. That's 700 to 1, all right? And the result is that Israel gained 23% more land than they were actually given in the partition plan. Okay, so not only did they win, they beat all these other nations, but they gained even more land. Just kind of interesting, and in my opinion, that's a God thing. I think God's protecting them, and, and you know, the fact that they even still exist is, uh, is a God thing. Well, let's zoom in on this map a little bit. Let's look at Israel. Right now, um, you got Israel is this sliver in the orange. And then you have these, the striped areas. Oh, it's not working. I don't know. It's a tool. It's not even for this. So and then you got these striped areas called Sinai. You got the West Bank. You got the Golan Heights. You got Gaza Strip. We've heard those words before. Okay. It's interesting. We're on the other side of the world. And we know these places uh, because it doesn't have peace. Um, in 1956, a few years later, you got the Sinai War. That's where Egypt is backed by Russia, and they move equipment into the Sinai Peninsula right here, and they attack Israel from there. The result of that is it took Israel nine days to defeat Egypt and the Russian-backed um, equipment, and they actually won the Sinai Peninsula and the Suez Canal. And the Suez Canal is a large canal that uh, is an important trading uh, canal in between Egypt and the Sinai area. It goes right in that kind of crack right there, and, um, 
And they actually withdrew from that area and gave it back to Egypt because of pressure from the United States saying, hey, you need to give that back. I know they attacked you. I know they're trying to wipe you off the map, but, uh, but you need to give that space back. And so Israel did that. Ten years later, you got the Six-Day War. In June 1967, while, US is, while the United States is in Vietnam, you got Russia um, who is backing Syria and Egypt. And Egypt also is commanding Jordanian troops, which is right next to or Jordan, which is right next to Israel. They go in and they also attack Israel. And the result at the ceasefire is that Israel gains the, the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the Western Bank, and all of Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. So they get all this area... Um, is added to Israel at the result, really with the result of that war. And just a few years later, uh, you got the Yom Kippur War, which is Egypt and Syria. They launch a surprise attack on a Jewish holiday because they know the Jews are all busy celebrating. And the result is that Israel wins decisively in 19 days. They beat them back. And so it's just kind of interesting as we're looking, as we kind of go through a little bit of the history of, of Israel, we're realizing that, hey, they don't know what peace is like. Even go on Google just this past week, right, you see that people are getting shot and you got, you know, you got the Palestinians, you got the Jewish people, like they're not getting along. It's just terrible, terrible stuff. And so this treaty that this world leader makes sometime in the future with Israel, we can understand here today that is huge. It's never been done before, okay? It's something that, that hasn't happened. And this guy will look like the greatest peacemaker of all time. And I'm sure he's going to get the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm sure he's going to get all the awards. And when this treaty is signed by this world leader, it's, that's when the Bible says the seven-year tribulation period begins. Now, this tribulation period is... Sounds kind of complicated. Basically, it's, it's just this. It's a period of time where God deals with evil in the world directly and uh, dramatically. Meaning God's not messing around anymore. All right? He's like punishing the wrong. And we see these seven years that this happens. We see this start. It starts off peacefully. But the peace doesn't last for very long. In fact, the nations start declaring war on each other. And they start fighting with each other. And a bunch of people die. The Bible tells us that a quarter of the earth, a quarter of the population of the earth, they all die. And there's a bunch of natural disasters. There's earthquakes. There's storms. There's droughts. There's maybe meteorites. There's, there's sickness. Just all this stuff is happening while all the nations on earth, it's like World War III, are fighting each other. And it gets progressively worse. And it's so intense and it's so terrible, and it's so big, and it's so bad that it's really beyond our ability to imagine. And you'd think that the population of the world or the people that, that are living during that time would actually give their lives over to Jesus. That would say, cry out and be like, okay, we're done. Enough. I believe. But that's not what, what happens. Uh, a few do. But by far, most of the people, they don't, just, they don't just decide not to believe in God. They all believe in God. They choose to curse God. Right? They choose to reject him. They don't want anything to do with him. In the meantime, the world is going to be being run by this, by this world leader, right? The Bible calls the Antichrist. But, but some people, they give their life over to Jesus. And so the, the world leader, he actually has those people hunted down and killed. And the world supports him for it. And that's where the world leader, he gives like what Mike was talking about last week, the mark of the beast, which sounds 
kind of creepy, uh, but it's really, it's just, it's just a mark saying uh, so that you can, you know, buy and sell things. It's kind of interesting um, that, uh, again, two years ago, this is something that I, I'd be like, well, I know, you know, I believe it's true. I know this is going to happen, but it's like we're not even close to that. But there are places in our own country now with the vaccine and stuff like that, which, by the way, I'm not saying that's the mark of the beast, so don't even come up and talk to me and try to, you know, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but it could be something similar to that or, you know, whatever. But there's places in our country right now where you have to show, like, your papers and stuff to buy or sell. Right? It's just kind of interesting. I'm just, just pointing that out. And so it's going to be something kind of like that. Like, I can picture how this all can happen a lot better now. And so um, this is what's going on. Three and a half years in. Um, halfway through, the world leader, he breaks his treaty with Israel. He walks into the Jewish temple, the Bible says, and he declares himself not king of the, king of the earth, okay, not king of the world. He declares himself as God. And the world starts to worship him as God. Now, right now, there's an issue with that because there is no temple. Here's a picture right here of the temple mount. Um, the Jewish temple used to be there. It was torn down. In, it was ripped down in 70 A.D., by, uh, by the Roman government. And uh, so the temple that, that Jesus walked through in those streets, you know, those are all gone at this point. And right now there's a, there's a mosque that's sitting there with the golden dome. You see, it's called the Dome of the Rock. And so that's sitting right where the old Jewish temple was um, currently. And uh, it's kind of interesting because the Jewish people, even though they had their nation, Israel, and even though Jerusalem, which is in the background here, is the capital city of Israel, the... Um, the Jewish people aren't even allowed on this site, okay? So for Judaism, this is their most holy site because this is where their temple used to be. It's not there anymore. Um, they're not even allowed on that site because of the, it's, it's really controlled by, by Islam. It's controlled by, by the Muslims. And so um, just kind of interesting there. But at some point, uh, there will be a temple that will be, will be built on that mount somewhere, maybe right next to it, maybe where that, the mosque is, maybe to the other side. I don't know. And we don't really necessarily know how that's going to happen. One thing that's kind of interesting is that the Jewish people, they have all the, the furniture and all the stuff that goes in the temple already made. Kind of weird. It's already set. It's all ready to go. They just don't have, they don't have the building yet. And they can't build there um, without, getting, you know, without going to war. So they haven't done that. But uh, maybe a temple being built okay, is something that has to do with this treaty that this world leader, you know, brings in. Maybe he makes it possible. We don't know how it happens. We just know that a temple will be built there at some point in the future someday. So when this world leader goes into this temple, which doesn't exist yet, and uh, walks in there and declares himself as God, the Bible tells us that the Jewish people, they actually run to the mountains. In fact, Jesus, he says one time, as he's telling his disciples about how this stuff is going to happen, he says, man, you know, the people who are alive during that time period, like, they need to watch out. Like, when that guy comes in and he sits in the temple and he declares himself God and people start worshiping him, he's saying the Jewish people, they need to leave. It's like they need to get out of there because some bad stuff is coming. And the whole world is kind of messed up. All right, we see at the end of these seven years that the world leader gathers a worldwide army to attack these remaining Jews. And um, we, a couple weeks ago, we called this the sixth, during the sixth bowl. If that means nothing to you, 
don't worry about it. Um, but John, uh, this guy named John, he actually tries to describe this, this to us. And this is what we talked about a few weeks ago. Where this guy named John, he was one of Jesus' disciples. And, uh, and, and he, was, he was a young guy with Jesus. Fast forward to the end of his life, he's, he's um, exiled on an island called Patmos by the Roman government. And, uh, and he's doing his thing one day, and he's super old at this point, and it's on a Sunday, and he's reading his newspaper, drinking his coffee, doing whatever John did. I don't know. And bam, suddenly he's in the presence of God. Like just right then, right there. He's not ready for it. He didn't know that it was gonna, it was gonna happen or anything. And so John, who describes himself in the book of John, yeah, uh, there we go, <laughs> all right. Um, he describes himself as he was the disciple out of the 12 disciples that Jesus really loved. Kind of funny to me, kind of interesting. But John, I think it's safe to say that John and Jesus, they were super close. Like, like Jesus was John's like best friend. And so here's John, sometime at the end of his life, he appears in the throne room of God and someone starts talking to him and he turns around to look at who's talking to him and it's Jesus, his friend, that he hasn't seen for decades. And it's kind of interesting that John doesn't turn around and say, whoa, Jesus, what's up, man? I haven't seen you for a long time. How's it going? Why am I here? What's going on? You know, he, he doesn't do that. He turns around and he sees a white-haired, fiery-eyed, glowing skin, shining Jesus face staring back at him. And the Bible, John tells us that he falls on his face like a dead man. He falls down. It's kind of funny because sometimes uh, I'm talking to people and they'll say stuff like, you know, when I die, when I get up to heaven, I got some questions for the big man. You know, like you hear people say that and I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, you, you don't know what you're, you're going to fall on your face, man, when you see Jesus. You're not going to start asking him questions. Like, that's not going to happen. It's funny because here's John, Jesus' best friend. He doesn't do, uh, it, it, Jesus, he actually reaches over and he touches John. He's like, man, don't be afraid. Stands him up. He says, I want you to see what's going to happen and I want you to write this stuff down. And so John writes down what he sees and he writes down what he hears. And that's where we get the book of Revelation, which we're going to look at real quick. Um, so basically, this is how John describes Jesus coming back. He's saying, hey, he's coming back and this is what it's going to look, look like. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, he says, The sixth uh, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, this is something that's going to happen in the future. I had to look up. Uh, the Euphrates River, because I remember learning about it like in fifth grade, but, you know, sorry teachers, you know, it just doesn't stick in for, you know, long after that. But I, anyway, I had to look that up and, um, and just to see where it's in relation to Israel. And it's kind of funny because you go on Google and you look up Euphrates River and it's all about how the Euphrates River is drying up. Now this isn't going to happen now. This is just going to happen in the future. And so, you know, I'm just saying, it's kind of weird. It's just interesting. Anyway, so that river dries up. And he says, Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. Now, if I haven't lost you yet, okay, then uh, you, guys are, you guys really paid attention. Here's the deal. This is all um, imagery-based. And so here's John. He's trying to describe how this is. Daniel, in the Old Testament, he kind of did the same thing. Uh, we got to realize who these people are. So the dragon is how John describes Satan. The beast is how John describes the Antichrist or this world leader that I'm talking about. And the false prophet is this guy who follows this world leader around saying, hey, you guys should worship this guy. Okay, he's kind of a, he's a, he's a, a religious leader type. 
So he says, I saw unclean spirits coming out of these guys. He says, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So basically what's going on here is John saying, you got, you got Satan, you got the world leader, you got his false prophet. They are going around um, the world coming before these government officials, and they're even performing, like, miraculous signs and wonders. Like, they're, they're doing these things, and people are like, dude, okay, maybe you are God. I don't know. I've never seen that before. And it's really de demonic stuff is what John's saying. But these guys are convincing the government leaders around the world to follow them against Israel, to wipe them out. In verse 16, it says, So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now, for most of us, we view this word Armageddon, we view it as, like, a, as a, like an event, right? We view it as like, oh, that's that battle thing that's going to happen sometime in the future, like end of the world battle type thing. That's how we view it. But Armageddon is actually a place, okay? Um, it's, uh, here's a picture of Armageddon or the Valley of Megiddo, which is in, it, it's in Israel. And uh, this is the place that John's saying, he's saying, hey, this is where all this is going to happen. Okay, it's a real place. It's in Israel today. Um, but the world leader, what John's saying, what the Bible's saying, is the world leader is going to come, and in this location, in this place, he's going to gather his armies together to march against Israel to wipe them out. And for Israel, there's no hope. I mean, you got Israel against the entire world. It doesn't look good. And at this point, and maybe because there is no hope, the Bible tells us that Jew, the Jewish people finally call out to Jesus, their Savior, who they missed 2,000 years ago, who they rejected, or most of them rejected. They're finally going to call out to Jesus, and Jesus, man, he's going to show up in a big way. In verse 11, he says, then I saw heaven open. Now, again, this is John. He's just trying to describe for us what he's seeing. He doesn't know. He's seeing stuff he's never seen before. He says, then I saw heaven. It was like open. And there was a white horse. And its rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice, he judges and he makes war. He says, his eyes were like fiery flame. And many crowns were on his head. And he had a name written that no one knows except for himself. And he wore a robe dipped in blood. Now, why does he have a robe dipped in blood? Okay, what, what's up with this? What's going on with this? There's been no battle yet. Hasn't happened yet. It's because it's his own blood. It's because Jesus came first to die, as John would describe him, as a slaughtered lamb. He's wearing his own blood from when he died. He says he wore, wore a robe dipped in his own blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies that were in heaven, they followed him. They're also on white horses. They were wearing pure white linen. They're dressed in white too. And he says, and a sharp sword came from his mouth. Now, we hear the sharp, sharp sword and we have this like image. Some, some of you guys, maybe you've seen like pictures and stuff where it's like Jesus coming down on a white horse. He got this like sword thing coming out of his mouth. It's like he's going to start whipping that thing around, you know, whatever that would look like. That's not, it's not a physical short sword here. It's, a, it's, a, it's his words. And again, John's using imagery to try to describe the importance of what's going on here. Um, we know that, uh, first of all, like God's word, all right, the Bible describes as a sword, all right. It's sharp. It's something that's useful, okay, um, and, and, it, and it's true. And so he's describing Jesus' words that he's saying. So a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it, meaning all Jesus has to do is say the word. 
and they win. Remember, the, the world was created in words or with words, right? Like remember at the beginning, God says, let there be, and there was. All right? The word, the, the, the world is, was created in, by words, and at the end of the world, or the, the end of the world is going to be, the world is going to be ended with words as well. We see in verse 16, he says, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, in our culture, there's really two prevailing images of Jesus, or what Jesus looks like. Number one, you got the helpless, you know, baby Jesus that we celebrate every year at Christmas. We're all getting ready to celebrate. You got the, the baby Jesus lying in a, in a manger, okay, who is, is helpless and can't do anything. Then you got the robe-wearing, dress-wearing Jesus who's just plain soft. You know, it's the other way we view Jesus as a, as a grown man. And so John is trying to describe to us what he is seeing. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not Jesus. All right, Jesus isn't some weak, you know, helpless baby or some, like, dress-wearing girl walking around. That's not, that's not what's going on, okay? He's saying, no, Jesus, this is Jesus who is, who is the king. He's saying, this is King Jesus. This is not playing around anymore, Jesus. This is, I've given you a thousands of years to turn from your sin, Jesus. This is, Jesus died and blood all over his clothes, Jesus. This is, time is up, Jesus. And he comes. And his own creation openly and unapologetically degrades him and criticizes him as he comes like they do today. And John describes this. He says, then I saw the beast. Who's the beast? This is that world leader, okay? Same guy. He says, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against that rider, against Jesus on the horse and against his army. Now, who's in his army? I don't know for sure. Different scholars have different uh, views of what this is. Some people say, oh, this is his army of angels. Other people say, no, no, this is the church. Personally, I hope it's the church, okay, because I would like to be there for this. That would be sweet to be in Jesus' army. I'm coming. Um, actually, I will, be, I will be honest. I do pray sometimes and say, hey, Jesus, you know, why, uh, you know, in case anybody hasn't asked for this before, but if I could be four horses um, to the right of you as you're coming down on the front row, like, I wouldn't mind that, you know. That'd be sweet. You don't, none of these guys have weapons. They don't need weapons because they have Jesus' words because Jesus can talk. That's all they need. All right, so they come down, and it's his army. It says, but the beast, this, this uh, world leader, he was taken prisoner. They, they lose. Game over. And along with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs in his presence He's saying, he deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image with these signs, and both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. He says, the rest were killed with the sword, meaning Jesus just spoke, that came out from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And so all of a sudden, it's just game over. Jesus speaks, and it's done. It's over. The world leader and this religious leader, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're thrown into hell. What about Satan? I don't know. Next chapter, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key to the abyss. We talked about the abyss a couple weeks ago. There seems to be a place where God, has, uh, where God keeps kind of the worst of the worst um, demons. Basically, demons are just fallen angels. Okay, same thing. Um, but... Uh, 
But we see in the, we see early on, remember that story, we talked about this, I think, uh, remember that story where Jesus, he's doing his ministry, there's some naked guy that runs up to him, and he's like, hey, I know, who, he's demon possessed, and he says, hey, I know who you are, Jesus, you know, I, you don't, and remember what they say, they say, don't send us into the abyss, whatever you do, please don't send us to that place. And Jesus says, okay, and he sends them into a bunch of pigs, they all run down a bank, embankment and die, remember that? We just talked about it two weeks ago, so come on, people. All right, so it's just interesting. There's this place that we, it seems to be from the days before the flood, days before Noah, that there are some um, demons or, or fallen angels who did something so bad that God picked them out and put them into this place called the abyss, and, um, and they're there waiting to the, for, you know, for this day. It's kind of interesting that Jesus, it, during the three days, or kind of two days, that Jesus, after he died and when he rose again on the cross, the Bible tells us that Jesus, he went down to that place and just told him that he won. Kind of funny, right? So he's just like, hey, just want to let you guys know, I died, I took care of it, I defeated death, their sins are forgiven, now what? You know? And so he, here comes this, this key to the, to the abyss, this place, wherever this place is, in his hand. He says, he sees the dragon the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He gets thrown in there, and he threw him into the abyss. He closed it, and he put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released just for a short time. So all of a sudden, Jesus comes down. It happens super quick. Game over. The armies are dead because Jesus spoke. You got the world leader who's, who's in hell. You got the false prophet who's also thrown in hell. You got Satan himself who's thrown into this place called the abyss. And Jesus takes his place as king of the earth. And at this point, this ushers in uh, this 1,000-year this period, which, which scholars call the millennial kingdom. And at the end of this thousand years. Satan is actually going to be let up one last time, and he does some more damage, and we'll talk about that next week. But I totally understand that this stuff sounds crazy. It's because it's something the earth has never experienced before. But it's true. Like, it's going to happen. And in fact, I feel like there's a good chance that we might be living in the most exciting time in human history. All right, like right now. And that's why we're talking about it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's me. Sweet. Thanks, John. And he says, And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy. That's you. All right? And keep what is written in it. Why? Why does it matter so much? Why is it so good for us to hear it? He says, Because the time is near. And he said the time was near 2,000 years ago. That's a long time. See, here's the deal. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. It's going to happen. It's certain. The last time he came, he came, as John describes, as a slaughtered lamb, where he came to die for you and for me because we are messed up people. I mean, think about that for just a second, right? God of the universe, who just spoke the universe into existence just with his, with his words. He didn't use anything else. He came down and he voluntarily died 
for us. Like, it's just crazy. Like, you think this stuff is crazy? You look at this and you're like, what is he talking about up there? This is crazy. No, no, no. God allowing himself to die on a cross, that is crazy. Like, that's nuts to even envision or think about. God of the universe comes as a humble servant and serves us? That's how he came last time. But this next time, he's coming, it's a different way, man. I mean, he's coming with power, authority, glory, holiness. He's coming with strength. See, the cool thing is, we don't worship some dress-wearing, soft, helpless, baby, weak God. The person who John's describing here, this is who we worship. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's coming back. Let's pray. God, we, uh, this is some complicated stuff. But Lord, you're coming back. And if we're still alive when that day comes, I mean, you're rescuing us from, from the horrible stuff that's going to happen. That, that we as people bring on ourselves. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you for your whole plan. We thank you for telling us about what's going to happen. You don't have to do that. There is some exciting stuff that we as Christians, those of us who have given our lives over to you, God, we get to experience and be a part of. God, we can't wait. Lord, we thank you. and We ask that if there's anybody in this room who they haven't given their lives over to you, Lord, help them not to wait another day because you don't promise them another day. Lord, we thank you for these words. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.